0: I'm Jack Amlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Putting Profitable Precision Tools to Work in Strip-Till, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com growing solutions. While well, precision farming practices are an essential part of many strip-till operations to improve accuracy and efficiency, but as ag technology continues to rapidly evolve, Which products or platforms are most suitable for a strip-till system to provide the highest return on investment? For more than a decade, Dresden, Ontario farmer Mark Richards has adopted and adapted precision farming strategies, including implement guidance, interseeding technology, and data analysis on its 3,000-acre corn, soybeans, sugar beet, and wheat operation. Implementing precision farming practices complements Mark's overall farming philosophy of being a smart steward of his operation. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, Mark evaluates progressive precision technologies and on-farm trials he's conducted to measure the benefits and challenges. I'll give a
1: little background on uh, myself and the, the farming operation we run in southwestern Ontario. We've been growing processing tomatoes for the last 50 years as a family. Um, All our tomatoes have always been delivered to the plant in the local town, which we are on the very edge of in Dresden, Ontario. We've been through in the 50 years, probably six or seven different ownership changes at that processing plant. We're currently owned by ConAgra Foods, which is the Hunts brands. My father and uncle started farming together in the late 60s, early 70s. Started, well, my grandfather before that and his, father before that and I actually live in the home farm and it's been in the Richards family for 118 years I think my wife's research has shown so we're rapidly uh, we've been established in the community for a number of years. come from a family of five kids. I'm the oldest son. Uh, I have two younger brothers and two sisters who are twins who are younger yet. My uncle had five children also. They uh, lost a daughter when she was 11 to a congenital heart disease. And his second oldest son, or his middle son, is farming with me currently in the operation that we uh, run outside of Dresden. I wasn't gonna come back to the farm. I tricked, or my wife says I tricked her into marrying me because I told her when I was graduating from high school that I wanted to be an engineer. And I was accepted to the University of Western Ontario in the engineering program. I don't know if anybody. I don't know if it's the same in the states in the engineering program or what programs at college. But um, one of the major courses that's not on the schedule at uh, University for Engineering at Western Ontario is how to drink beer. Sad to say, I excelled in that class, and not so much in all the other ones that required a good mark to be able to come back. So. I then went to the, or the what's now known as University of Guelph Richtown campus and did my diploma in horticultural production, and went to the University of Guelph main campus to continue my studies to try and get my bachelor of commerce due to some family issues and injuries at home. I ended up coming home early. We got a second tomato contract that my cousin and I farmed together for four or five years before uh, the plant that we grow for in Dresden actually bought that processor and. We amalgamated operations and we run under one contract now. So when I came back to the firm, I was probably a little more progressive, I would say, and a little more willing to try some different things. And um, as some of you can appreciate, the push for using new technology can be um, daunting if you're the younger generation and if it's always been done this way, that sometimes you're the introduction of uh, a new, system, particularly remembering that GPS and guidance and field record-keeping real-time was kind of a new thing back in the early to mid-90s. So I had to learn how to sell my ideas to myself, my cousin, my uncle, and my father. And I'm going to go through the story of how we got to where we are today and what we're using today. So When I first came back to the firm, I recognized the potential to use um, the GPS technology as it came to light. I had to take the stance that we had to decide whether they were toys or tools, and that was kind of my father's uh, saying, we need to decide whether we it's just something to have to have or do you, are we gonna be able to make use of it and uh, put some money in the bank? So early on, we had GPS guidance. Um, this is all a history lesson for everybody that you've probably lived through. The GPS guidance early on was a light bar or, and then they introduced assisted steering. Our first GPS system was a Cultiva 8, or not a Cultiva ATC, the Cultiva LTI, and I don't know if everybody remembers that. That was by Autofarm. It was a black and white screen and their big selling point was it gave you a virtual highway to follow when you were trying to steer. Some of the other things it was kind of clunky at doing, but you could get some real-time recording and documentation done, which I had identified when we got back to the front, we needed to keep better track of what we were doing, when we were doing it, and what effect that had. Shortly after that, I believe Ag Leader came out with their uh, yield mapping technology on the older combines, and I'd, we never did get it on the uh, previous combines. But one of the things we did embrace immediately was site-specific soil sampling. We recognized that perhaps we could make some, uh, or save some money when we were renting tomato ground particularly by using uh, variable rate prescription maps for fertilizer application. Tomato land rent in our area, this is back in the 90s, was running four to five hundred dollars an acre to rent the ground and most of the time we had to dump about a thousand pounds total of fertility onto the field to get a year's production out of it. We tried to enter into as many multi-year deals as we could where we would get the crop after tomatoes to be able to use up some of the residual fertility. But we also decided that using uh, site-specific soil sampling on those farms and doing variable rate applications would probably save us some money and in most cases it did. Keep in mind that when we looked for tomato ground because tomatoes are a high value crop, um, tomatoes at this point this year, I did my math on the way here, we have about two thousand dollars an acre invested in inputs and tomatoes. So it's a fairly substantial uh, risk, and making sure you have appropriate land with appropriate fertility and particular pH was a very big concern then. So uh, we did realize some, actually we realized quite a bit of savings when we did variable rate on those farms that we rented. We rent about 25% of the acreage that we need for tomatoes. since the 90s, we've increased the amount of land that's as capable of growing tomatoes or good tomatoes. We've taken it in ownership. We've done, um, we call it upgrading land. We had a number of acres in that was So where I live, we're right along the Sydenham River and you'd have to look at a map. Where I live relative to the world, if everybody knows where Detroit is, if you go about 20 miles due east and 20 miles due north, you come into Dresden. You have to go around Lake St. Clair if you cross there. If anybody knows where Algonac, Michigan is, we're about 15 miles straight inland from where it crosses the uh, river into the Walpole Island Indian Reserve. The Sydenham River's kind of the break from the really, we call it God's country on the south side of the river. It's a Chatham Township. You can pretty much grow anything. The variety of crops going there, I couldn't even start to list it, I believe. Our ag advisor for the municipality posted an article last year and we grow over 80 different vegetable crops within the uh, confines of the municipality of Chatham-Kent. But when you get to my side of the river, there's about a half a mile of really fertile ground and then you run into some really nice clay loam and then you run into stuff that would be similar to farming in the parking lot outside. And we've had quite a bit of the parking lot ground So As the opportunities arose, we've upgraded land by selling that and paying a little bit more to get some closer to the river, which we also use for irrigation. So As we continue to go through the toys or tools list, the other thing I identified early on, because I don't know how I ended up in that position, but from the beginning I was the one that drove the sprayer 95 percent of the time, and I recognize the fact that swath control would be a, a very good addition using GPS and variable rate applications for some of the products we use in the tomatoes would be potentially a money saving and yield enhancing idea. So this is where we started. Like I said, we started actually one behind this, but we had the Cultiva ATCs. Uh, We ran four or five of those in machines. It was an aftermarket thing. We run uh, pretty much all John Deere equipment the Cultiva ATC, the first hydraulic auto steer we put on a tractor ran through the Cultiva ATC and used the Outback uh, E-drive system to drive it. A couple little scary moments though we discovered early on in guidance. If everybody has auto steer now you know that as soon as you touch the steering wheel it kicks it out I think on almost every brand. Not so much on the the way they had this one set up you had to actually physically push a button on the screen to shut it off so we learned fairly quickly that doing fence rows you didn't want to do beside the fence row wasn't an appropriate time to kick the auto steer in on the uh, ATC. It may have required the repair of a couple of markers and some scary moments for the guy in the tractor seat. So what this provided for us was a, the visual guidance. Um, we really found that visual guidance helped with fertilizer spreading, although father and uncle were pretty good at finding that 40-foot mark every time by themselves and getting at one end of the field to the other. We were mainly broad-acre tillage, or we were all broad-acre tillage at that point. Um, usually had the rows to follow from the year before. Dad loved spreading on plowed ground though, so sometimes his tracks would be on a bit of an angle and this kind of straightened it out a little bit. I used it for spraying for quite a bit because it actually cost less than replacing my foam marker system if something broke. Still not the greatest for, how many people here remember driving to a light bar or still do? I'm gonna say that's like 30% of the crowd. Most, Most of you probably started with some kind of assisted steering. The light bar was great, but staying on line, try it sometime, use the light bar on top of your 2630 or 2600 or your Trimble 750 and try to drive straight to the other end and watch other stuff. It's not as easy as it sounds, but it was as good or better than foam markers. It was not, we determined as easy as a marker for planning where you had that line to line up with and drive and see to the end of the field. Once you figured out to look when you got your line, drove up and lined up, I always tell the guys I was trying to train, look about four miles or two miles ahead and find a stick or a hydropole or electrical pole or a tree and drive towards it. But one day, I went to the field after I had trained a young fellow to drive, and 1st he had some really good straight passes, and the next pass, he went probably 200 feet off to the side, and he had decided to line up with a semi-truck on the highway. <laughs> and he drove right to it. Early on, also, the uh, satellite array didn't seem to be quite as uh, stable as it is now, and we suffered through many signal interruptions. And wash back then was truly sub 12 inch because it would be out up to 12 inches even on pass to pass. So, as we used the visual guidance, the question was did it pay? Was it making us money or was it saving us money? And when we looked back at that before we made the next step, which is on the next slide, um, a couple of ways it paid. We were able, so I paid for the system in the sprayer by not upgrading my foam marker system and got along fine. It paid for the, well, when you used it for fertilizer spreading, if it wasn't one of the more experienced gentlemen driving the tractor, we had a more consistent spread pattern. Were we getting all our money back on it? No, but maybe we needed to take the next step. So the next step was, and I don't, this is the Autofarm Cultiva original mechanical drive unit. So if you notice, how many people used one of these? So for those of you who didn't, see, the, see that lever right here? To engage the auto steer, you actually had to lift that lever up, slide it sideways, and lock it back down. Then it engaged the clutch. And noisy is an understatement for that motor when it was trying to steer, especially if you're on challenging, in challenging conditions, because it would whack the steering wheel back and forth, and the gear sounded like they were grinding. And, but. When we put it in the sprayer, in the fertilizer spreader tractor, we were it was a lot better to keep it straight. It was early times, in my opinion, and it actually worked and they've refined that every I think a lot of you have seen the uh, like Raven everybody's got an under steering wheel electric controller, the ATU for deer is similar to that, much more refined, so it was probably the first iteration of that, and it did work, not as well as uh hydraulic auto steer, but it did work. So when we realized that we could get the GPS to steer the system, we started to look at, so go back to me being the one that's pushing the technology. And I remember I got linked up with a, uh, a salesman for, he specialized in precision equipment for one of the big dealers in Ontario. And we had a couple meetings and he, we enjoyed each other's company and talking about what the possibilities were. But he said, you know, Mark, when you start talking precision, it's kind of like an addictive drug. He said, I'm gonna give you the visual guidance and you're gonna say, wow, this is great. And then when you get the mechanical driving or the assisted steering, you're gonna think, man. He said, "It's and the next thing you know, you're opening your wallet up and giving me all your money so you can get to the next step. Well, he was probably more than a little bit cracked. So when we talk about exploring the possibilities, now that we know we can steer the thing and it can go straight, I was um, still rather naive and fairly young and I had visions of running the whole farm on controlled traffic and we'd have real time data and the record keeping improvement would help us make better decisions and we could look at making changes to how we did tillage. Um, I talked yesterday in, in tomatoes and I mentioned we were all broad acre tillage. I think most people were back in the, Mid to late 90s. Um, there was some ridge till in our area, some strip cropping in our area, but the norm was a big tract with a big cultivator, either a deep ripper or a moldboard plow. A bunch of passes, but I looked at could we make changes to tillage with the uh, GPS? And what would the long term benefits be? And I started to list those off and try to sell those to my partners in the farming operation. But the biggest thing I was looking at was how can we make this stuff work so we can be more efficient. And by more efficient, so what I started to look at was I went to the field one day and uh, one of the hired men was driving the articulated tractor with the 32-foot cultivator behind. And I had to go fix something on the cultivator, and I was watching him come towards me. And, man, he was overlapping by two feet but he was straight, but he was overlapping by two feet. We had no guidance in this tractor. So I started doing the math because when I earlier, earlier I said we saw the biggest benefit, the biggest payback being use it in the sprayer, so it replace a full marker and you use the sprayer a lot, you put a lot of product through it. But you know, typically I think a decent sprayer operator with a full marker with some experience can probably keep a 60 foot boom within a foot of where it's supposed to be. So your overlap something like 1.8%, 2%, not quite 2%. When I saw that cultivator coming down and he was consistently lapping two feet on 30, I thought, you know, we're gonna make more money putting this stuff in tillage equipment than we are in any of the application equipment because it's a narrower width and they tend to lap more. So we got thinking about it. I was selling the ideas but, and trying to explore the possibilities, but then I had the reality check of talking to my father and uncle who were less than of of the, uh, they were less enthusiastic about embracing some of the technology. Um, The main reason they were, I won't say naysayers, but entered into using more technology with trepidation was due to some of the technical glitches. And I will admit a lot of it on my part was not doing quite enough planning for how we were going to implement some of this stuff, so technical glitches. I want to talk a little bit about how you can avoid some of the technical glitches as you increase your reliance on technology or use it more. The fellow I told you I talked to about that thought I'd get addicted to precision and was clairvoyant because he was correct, told me I could uh, get my equipment from him for about 15% off a list if I would be a sub-dealer for him. So. Basically, I had to go and try and sell some of the stuff, but he didn't anticipate me selling a lot. It was just a way for me to get a nice little rebate to get us upgraded in a precision equipment. But through that, I got to attend the dealer's sales training courses and talk to some of the other sub other guys that were handling precision for him. This dealer in Ontario was kind of centrally located and didn't have any branches to the south or the east and. So we once a year we got together in the summer for a two-day thing. We went over sales, sales training. But the most common thing that everybody said they got calls on and we referred to it as the RTFM support call. Does anybody want to guess what RTFM stands for? It's read the friggin' manual. I know, and my wife tells me, and my father tells me, I'm not the typical person. Before I even think about buying a piece of equipment, I'll go online and read the operator's manual one end to the other, to make sure that what I'm looking at, I'm not expecting more than it's capable of, and that I have some understanding of what the complications and what the technicalities are using it. Fast forward to 2010, we bought a new John Deere 70-30 series tractor with all the touch set controls. Well, <clears throat> father's driven a tractor for 50 plus years and he tells me, he's asking me how to do this and that on the tractor and I had read the manual and told him how to get through it. And he says, well, how do you know all this? I said, well, I read the manual. Well, I bought four, I bought tractors for 50 years and I've never had to read the opera's manual on how to run one. Well. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that with technology, and even with your new tractors, it's worth a little browse. Um, just got a new sprayer last week. Spent five or six hours going over that operator's manual, even though it was very similar to the one it replaced, but uh, read the friggin' manual when you get a new piece of equipment, and I, I'm gonna, one of the pieces of advice I'll give you is read it before you buy it. I always ask the salesman for a copy of the operator's manual you don't have to read it like word for word, cover for cover, but make sure it's gonna cover what you wanna do. And that's getting back to the not enough planning. When you have expectations of something, the salesman's gonna say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or we think we can do that. You wanna make sure you understand what the limitations are before you spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars on an auto steer rate control system, I think. So as we went forward we had to adapt I had to adapt my expectations of what we were going to get into and I can't stress enough the the long-term planning we 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 had to embrace in order to make sure that what we wanted to do what we thought we could do and how we were going to do it fit with the long-term goals of the operation the other thing was we didn't think we could make wholesale changes overnight So that required some long-term planning, and then once we figured out a plan for where we wanted to be and how we were gonna get there, we did it by steps. And I'm probably more enthusiastic about it than the rest of those on my operation, and it required me to acquire a rather large dose of patience. And at the end, I, I say reducing expectations, but it was more the title, Adapting My Expectations, or Making the Expectations More Realistic when you're trying to deal with other people that don't share your enthusiasm for it. So we had the Warner Hydraulic Auto Steer System. We are in processing tomatoes. We noticed a problem in the tomatoes using the big tractor with triples on it. Tomato crop, we get a schedule from the processor, That we have to plant by, and they usually want us to start earlier than we think we should start almost every year. And almost every year, you run into that first week they want us to start, and the land's not quite 100%. Well, for a high-value crop, 100% fit lands one of the uh, one of the things you want to make sure you got. On the other hand, if you refuse to plant or don't keep up the schedule, you get. In processing tomato industry, we get a report card at the end every year on how we. How we fared to the rest of the growers. Processing tomato contracts, they're not worth any money, it's not like quota in the dairy and feather industry in, in Canada, but it's not easy to get in. I said we've grown for 50 years to be a new grower and apply to get a contract. I don't think our processor's taken a new grower on in 20 years. Going over the list in my head, I'm sure it's been longer than that actually. So you want to do what you can to keep the processor happy because you know if you lose that tomato contract because you're not performing up to their expectations. So it required us to push the ground a few years more than we wanted to. So on tomatoes, we started machine harvest in the mid 80s. I think it was 82, 83, we bought our first mechanical harvester for tomatoes. Up till that point, we were all hand-picked. When we went to machine harvest, the uh, system that they were using in California, I think they still do use in California, involved making raised beds. The reason they do it in California is for their flood irrigation. They have the channels for the water to flow down. It soaks into the beds where the tomatoes are and waters them. But all the harvesters were designed to run on those beds and harvest the tomatoes. We learned very rapidly that there was a big difference between some of the varieties of tomatoes they grew in California compared to our varieties, and that was Shatter loss. By shatter loss I mean, all it's very similar shatter loss on your combines, but figure a tomato. We had a variety that the joke was if you stood at the end of the field and sneezed all the fruit would fall off the vine and roll into the trenches. I don't have a picture of tomato harvester, but picture we have a six or five foot wide bed, you have a head that's five feet wide, has knives on it that go under the ground to cut the vines off, and then you're trying to get all that stuff up in the machine. Now imagine tomatoes falling down in a trench that's four feet below the height of that chain, and we spent many hours of frustration in the shop, many days of frustration in the shop, figuring out how to push those tomatoes back up and get them into the head. As, we, as mechanical harvesting evolved, um, harvesters were designed, actually we, we use a brand that's made in Pennsylvania now, to harvest tomatoes what we call on the flat, so we got rid of the beds. With the beds though, Back to why I mentioned that, we were completely controlled traffic because in the fall we had a fall better that would do deep tillage and make the set of beds, so you never drove where the tomatoes were going to be planted, I think like strip till. You never had a tire track where the tomatoes are going to be planted from the time you got out of there with the combine or the harvester the year before. And then you laid the field out so you could plant certain varieties in certain areas to do your break-ins and, or your breakouts outs for harvest in the, next, in the fall. When we went to the flat, we thought, oh man, this is way better, because we can just drive wherever with the big tractor, work the ground up. Well, like I said, we run in the spring on a farm that went from a sandy loam to a clay loam, and the person that worked it didn't realize that the ground that was clay loam wasn't really that fit, and we suffered through compaction issues through the crop that whole year, and we got thinking, how can we get back to controlled traffic? Well, to get back to controlled traffic, it was a perfect fit for the precision technology with the auto steer so that's when we decided it wasn't stripped till that drove us to it but it was controlled traffic in our tomato crowd that drove us to getting to auto steer that was more accurate the other crop that uh, pushed us to more accuracy was sugar beets we grow for the michigan sugar co-op um, sugar beets for harvesting it's a lot easier to harvest anybody's harvested sugar beets when they're in a straight line not when they have little I know the row finder would help a little bit on the archway, but the straighter you were, the better, and uh, we pushed towards to where we are now. We'll
0: get back to Mark's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com/growing-solutions. Well, one of the basic pieces of advice Mark has for farmers investing in technology is to understand the capabilities of what they purchase. Reading the owner's manual may sound like a tedious exercise, but it can be an invaluable solution to time and money-saving troubleshooting. Mark shared an example of his recent sprayer purchase and spending several hours reviewing his operator's manual before taking it to the field. Or better yet, read through the owner's manual prior to purchasing equipment or hardware to make sure you understand the functions and limitations of the product. Let's go back to the program now and hear more from Mark Richards on the importance of planning to maximize return on investment of data management.
1: Where we are now, and I'm not gonna say it's the best brand, I'm not not endorsing any brands. We were 100% green farm for years, so we uh, invested in the John Deere uh, precision technology. Every one of our tractors that runs in any of the fields now has RTK on it, that's a significant investment, I'm sure you're aware. Uh, I say 70% the same brand, we're actually probably 90% now, we only have one machine that has an ag leader system with a mechanical drive unit on it um an old miller sprayer we use for uh, late side dressing corn the other thing we gained when we went to the one brand is we have better data data management to make money off precision i think that you have to have good data management and that comes in your planning um, and the planning when you're rtk and auto steer and strip till and controlled traffic includes a fair chunk of time in the winter making sure that you have all the fields named properly you have the lines so everybody understands which one they're supposed to use when they're wearing the field so more attention to the planning and to be honest when we got to the John Deere stuff it just worked when you got in you hit the auto steer button it steered fairly straight right off the hop there wasn't going in and changing or fine-tuning very many settings so that got greater buy-in especially from The older generation in our operation because it was really easy to use as long as you could talk them through how to run the screens. Talk about reduced expectations and increased expectations. (laughs) My father does not hesitate to call me regardless of what I'm doing if he's in the tractor even though the father's semi-retired so he only drives uh, he only runs a tomato planter in the spring spreads some fertilizer plays with an excavator and a backhoe but we'll, he'll help us out in the field, so he wanted to. He wants to spread fertilizer. Well, I've taught him like three or four, ten dozen times how to do the auto steer. But he expects me, he fully expects me when he calls me, doesn't matter what I'm doing or where I'm at, to be able to visualize and tell him exactly where the button is on the screen to push to get to where he wants to go. So that's, I've reduced my expectations, but he's actually increased his expectations of me because I have to have a eidetic memory to remember where all this stuff is. Luckily, I use this stuff enough, and i 'm familiar enough I can usually get them through, but that 's just an aside. So we got greater buy-in and we 're moving we haven 't gotten to strip till yet. What has that allowed us to do? so we started to use we 've always used cover crops in the tomato crop we started with spot cover crops on the erodible sand we needed some organic material to hold it down. we wanted to help some fertility and some soil health but I was very interested in what would happen if we spread cover crop over the whole field early on. Oh, we'd, we don't need that. Um, the low ground will just make a mess. We'll have trash to deal with in the spring and you can't plant tomatoes through that kind of trash. And and To be honest, the tomato planter cannot handle very much trash. It's got a very blunt, deep shoe that has to drag through the ground. It doesn't have a v-opener and it does plug up with trash, but we'll get to We do a lot of tillage to get rid of that or we did a lot of tillage to get rid of that. Well the cover crop thing ahead of tomatoes we could see a difference probably the second year into it where we were getting a more consistent plant stand and plant yield through all the dips and hollows and broadcasting all over the place and we figured out how to work it in and termination timing, we've been around that for 20 years. You gotta terminate it early enough that it'll go through the cultivator because if you don't, you got a mess and you, gotta, you can't get tomato plants to get in the ground sealed and properly, so. But we've actually expanded the cover crop and this is through the use of precision. Without the uh, auto steer on the corn and beet planter, we wouldn't have the nerve to try this. This is our uh, very expensive, highly sophisticated corn interseeding side dressing rig that was all sarcasm. I bought this at an auction sale for $1,000. I have more money into the new tires we had to put on it to put it in the field. But Anyway, it's a 520 John Deere drill. Uh, you can get into corn almost up to my mid-thigh. Just wait until it's warm and make sure you hadn't used dicamba on it. And it won't, it won't break off. We try to get in a little bit earlier. We don't want to be too early because we don't want too much cover up before the corn shades it out. So we consider, I, this is a fairly economical approach. Um, as I said, I spent more on the, sprayer, uh, the application system and the tires than I did on the whole machine. We started using our yield maps, combining them with satellite and drone imagery to um, determine whether we need to use different practices there. Uh, the yield maps have pretty much indicated that we've got our fertility in the proper spots. We have not started with the prescription seeding yet we are doing the most most work we do with variable rate was with lime application because it is expensive and we have some farms that need up to three tons an acre in spots and less than a ton in other spots so the variable rate pays off there currently we're using the satellite imagery i'm part of a project with the uh, ministry of agriculture food and rural affairs in ontario and the ridgetown campus of the University of Guelph. It's called the Precision Farming. I can't remember what they named it completely, but what they're doing, well, I'll have to go back to why I got interested in it. We got, so I'm obviously one of the bleeding edge guys, so about seven, eight years ago, they talked me into, one of the suppliers talked me into having my fields flown by the airplane and getting NDVI imaging. And I make the joke, he, he brings them in the office, and here's the NDVI imagery from July and here's the yield map and they were, they're almost the same. I said, well, I don't want it to be the same. If there's a problem we can identify, how do we make it so the yield map's different, like better? So the one year they flew my sugar beet fields and I happened to have a tomato field in the scope where the plane took the pictures. And I remember very clearly the, the whole situation because it involved me coming home from a vacation and I had to jump in the sprayer at 7 o'clock at night and spray this tomato field. Later that week, I get, and I had a scouting report from my field scout that said there's some bacterial disease coming up in the tomatoes, nothing to be too alarmed about, continue your seven-day spray schedule. Later that week, he sent me the imagery, and it was actually taken seven days before I was in there at the sprayer and before I had the field report that said we had some bacterial infection in the tomatoes. Bacterial infection in the tomatoes isn't easy to, to fix, there's no bactericides that work. Um, fungicides work really good at keeping blights and alternaria and all that stuff out, but there's nothing really to help with the uh, bacterial diseases once they're established. So I got the drone imagery, and it was of the sugar beet field, which was across the road from this tomato field, and I got about two thirds of the tomato field in the picture and I know they use a different algorithm to generate the NDVI based on crop, so it was using the sugar beet algorithm, but it still showed in the tomato field these great big red areas. and There was a pattern, it was kind of a funny pattern. Well, lo and behold, two weeks later, the tomato field, that's exactly where the bacterial disease was the worst in the tomato field. So That was an aha moment. I said, we knew from the NDVI imagery four weeks before we saw how devastating it was. Was there something we could do back then to do it? Well, the only solution they gave us for bacterial disease at that point was added nutrition. Well, when you got tomatoes that are canopied in and filling all the rows in, you can't really go through without doing some mechanical damage, which introduces more incidence of fungal diseases. So we looked at changing our whole system or to get more nutrients to the tomatoes at the right time to fight bacterial disease. But anyway, that aha moment led me to believe, well, if we can get images of the tomato fields and we can find those red spots, we're not going to be able to, I, and I, I knew, I recognized we won't be able to tell exactly what it was at that point in time, just from the imagery, but it would be really neat if we could figure out what it, a variety of things you could do or ways you could address it. So. The project with the University of Guelph and Omafra is they, we go out and mark the field areas I know from farm the farm that I know have different variabilities in them. Then we fly it with the drone at least four times during the season, or this year we're using satellite imagery through farm command. And they do tissue analysis, soil samples every two weeks from those spots. And if we see a red spot, they'll actually move and do some samples there. We're in year two. Uh, Last year was a very variable field, Um, identified pH. I I mentioned pH is very particular in tomatoes and sugar beets. Um, If you have anything less than a six, you're not going to get production. They identified some pH issues. Uh, We found root lesion nematodes in the tomatoes this year that we had no idea would be there. Um, We're hoping to learn a little bit more, but at the very least now, when my scout goes out, he has a map. You can send him a KMZ file, which is a Google Earth file for those of you who aren't familiar with the dot it's after the files. and he can load it on his iPad, and it actually has his blue dot where he's walking in relative to where the different colors are. And so what I call that as more targeted scouting, because even I know scouts use a different pattern every time they're in the field, but this way they could still miss one of these red spots for three weeks at a time, depending on how they're patterned. Now we have more targeted scouting. If we see a problem from the imagery, either be satellite or, or a drone imagery, we can have them specifically investigate that issue and see if we can find something to address it. So, The other uh, efficiencies we're finding, so back to the bankable benefits, were more liberal at uh, combining operations, so I mentioned the reason I had the interseeder in the background on this picture is because we decided we were going to side dress the 28 at the same time, so we weren't making a separate pass to interseed because I'm still not sold that interseeding in the corn is the be-all and end-all. It established a good cover crop. Uh, We did uh, 90 acres total last year out of 1,000 acres of corn. Did five test strips. Of the five test strips, three were actually, was, wasn't statistically significant, but they were actually two to four bushels better than the rest of the field. Two were uh, about the same as the rest of the field, so we figured we're not hurting ourselves. So we actually interceded five, over half the acres of corn this year with a annual ryegrass crimson clover mix and we'll see how that works out. I did learn this spring and it's gonna depend on the weather now because the combine will tell the tale, but the beans didn't look as good where we planted through the ryegrass residue, but I'd let it get too big. We got delayed spraying. I think I can address that by spraying earlier. So as we go through, so we did the 500 acres with this this year. Um, We're doing test strips of fungicide on corn and applying insecticide where we find Western bean cutworm, egg masses. Um, probably a total of 12 different trials this year between what University of Guelph's doing, what we're doing and what OMAFRA's doing on our different farms. We're also participating in no P a no phosphorus. We're in the Lake Erie, the Western Lake Erie watershed where we get blamed for that ugly algal bloom on a regular basis. So we're looking at how we handle our phosphorus applications. Uh, We've never liked to put phosphorus out in the fall. We always want to put it out in the spring, close to when the crop can take it up. And we've changed how we apply the phosphorus with strip till. We apply all our phosphorus in the strip in the spring with the strip tiller. Prior to that, we were putting the majority of our phosphorus on with the planter on a two by two. We did, I think, 30 different strip trials over two years to determine whether we were hurting ourselves going away from a two by two to blending it all in the strip and the results came back that there was no difference between the two by two and blending all that starter fertilizer in that eight inch band. We're not seeing a difference in either the sugar beets or the corn that way, so I'm gonna call it conclusive on our operation. The other thing we're able to use the, so with the RTK steering, we have a 30 foot uh, 1860 John Deere air seeder. I was able to seed maybe I guess the pictures are big enough up there, but the top is looking down, and if you look closely, you can see little divots. Well, that's the row pattern of the tomato. Our tomatoes are 60-inch centers with rows 22 inches apart off-center, so you have a 22-inch row, a 38-inch row, 22-inch spacing. Anyway, it works out on a seven and a half foot spacing drill that you can block off the right runs and be within an eighth of an inch of... Dead on center to have 15 inch gaps in the cover crop. The reason we don't want cover crop where we're going to plant the tomatoes is twofold. One, we can go through a cover crop that's as big as it is in those pitchers with a strip tiller and never plug in the fall when it's green. And two, when we come back in the spring, we don't have any trash where the planter shoes are going to run. And that really sped up and improved planter operations compared to what we were doing with broadacre tillage and cover crop. To make the most out of the strip till in our operation, we recognized early on that we had to approach it with what I call a systems approach. We got three different, I'll call it three different classes of ground or three different qualities of ground that we farm. I mentioned the uh, parking lot clay back in Don Township. We do not grow sugar beets back there because we could probably grow sugar beets, getting them out of the field in the fall might be a different story, but we actually did grow some back there and didn't harvest those beets until the 7th of December in 2006, because it had been too wet too long. So, so those farms, we just firms, uh corn, soybeans, and wheat in rotation. With, once we get set up in the strip till rotation, when I say get set up with a strip till, we had some fields that maybe had been plowed or ripped and not worked level enough. And with strip till, we like to start with a flat level table because we're going to use basically controlled traffic and we want smooth operations for the field stuff. So the first year we will go in after wheat, we won't underseed it at the clover, we'll work up the wheat straw or wheat stubble, use the land leveler, get it leveled out and then make our first set of strips in the fall to put our potash down. And then from then on, the plan is strip till corn, no till soybeans, no till wheat, strip till corn and use a clover crop underneath the uh, wheat. Cover, cover crop underneath the wheat and we're trying to get the interseeded cover crop in the corn, so we'll have something growing almost every day of every year all the way through the rotation. Residues are an issue in tomatoes, but there can be an issue for planter performance if you want to go fast with the corn and sugar beet planter. Particularly when are planting sugar beets, we're only planting, we plant inch and a quarter to inch and a half. I know some guys are as shallow as uh, three quarters of an inch we still like to hit moisture and the new varieties, I believe, have enough push to get through nine years, <clears throat> nine years out of 10. But with cover crops in that strip, it doesn't matter what kind of row cleaner we use or how careful we are, the root masses still get in there and make it variable. So what that drill also you can block off runs to do 30 inch row spacing. And we did uh, two thirds of the cover crop after tomatoes and wheat last year with that row spacing blocked off on the drill. Had some problems in the one field where the strip till operator used the wrong line and stripped spring strips beside fall strips. The corn looks fine, but he was down to three miles an hour to get a good ride on the precision monitor. We're looking at making that space a little wider so we're not planting residue. So we're relying on the cover crop in between the rows I know we've dug in the strip and found the roots from the clover and wheat right through that um, strip, so we don't think we're hurting our soil integrity or structure by getting rid of this cover crop in the rows. We're hoping to have the same results, and tomatoes this year was the first year we uh, did strip tillage. A little history so on the tomatoes one we went to the flat with the big outfits then we went to completely controlled traffic with the auto steer so the way we were doing tomatoes up until this year we had a fall pass with a deep till rig it was a we like building stuff in the shop but we have a lot of unicorns out in the back lot we took an old 5000 Henneker cultivator took the cultivator took the gauge wheels and the colder off so we just had the shank put the narrow knives on and you could get it down to the 22 inch in row spacing and that would suck itself down about a foot deep into the ground and we did fall tillage that way through our cover crop side benefit of that was the cover crop was hardly even phased by that the roots just kept growing right through that block it acted like a parrot till. It just lifted that whole block of soil where we were going to plant the tomatoes up and set it down, fractured. We liked it. We did it when it was dry. It fractured it. Cover crop continued to grow. Good results with that. But in the spring, to get rid of the cover crop, we had a 15, we're only 15 feet wide to plant tomatoes, um, six rows. It was three, a minimum of three passes to get the trash worked in. So we had, we always had rye or wheat that would grow right through until the spring. It took a minimum of three passes through that in the spring to get it ready for the planter to go through so he could plant, and even then, we were still running over some with a cul-de-packer to get lumps broke down and to get enough fine soil that we were happy with how it was sealing around the tomato plant. So using the drilled cover crop with the skip row configuration, we managed to manage that residue where we were going to plant We have good residue in between the rows. You can see that's all a rye straw underneath the tomatoes. There's still a fair bit of dirt there. We do do in-crop cultivation. Well, let's put it this way. I push, you could probably tell I'm the one that pushed us towards strip till tomatoes. And I wasn't feeling the love in the fall when I was getting a strip tiller set up. And a lot, a lot of concerns were brought forth that I recognize are concerns. One of the things with strip and having residue between the rows is when we're planting in early May, there's generally a time in May, usually before the full moon, where there's a pretty good chance of frost. Tomatoes can't handle any frost, they can't freeze at all. We plant little plugs that are about this tall. There's 288 of them in an 18 by one foot tray. So they're very small and fragile. What we found over the years though you can if you stop planting two days before it freezes and the plant actually gets somewhat established and it's got good soil coverage and planted nice, they'll usually 90 percent will survive. So the residue between the rows with the strip tiller was a concern that it would allow it to get colder, or, and I'm not going to go into any discussions about residue being warmer, or cooler or the microclimate. I just figured out the early field we would use a shorter cover crop and terminate it earlier. The strips we made, if, you go, if I go back to that picture, that was a tomato strip right after the strip tiller passed. That's the late field of tomatoes which was planted like a month after that pass and that rye was actually five feet tall when we planted. But that's the width and the quality of the strip and the tomatoes are going right down the center of that strip. So there is enough dark dirt there, I thought, to give us protection from frost. We didn't have the misfortune of getting that tested this year, so everything grew good. But it's one of the things that, that um, everybody in the operation wants to make sure we're watching as we go into this. But with the strip-till pass, without the stuff in between the rows, we went from that three passes with a 15-foot astine cultivator pulling a cul-packer and we were banding our fertilizer at that point to one pass with the strip till rig, putting on 400 pounds of fertilizer, 60% of it banded beside the rows, 40% of it blended in the strip. Crop scout, I, the scout that scouts our tomato field, scouts about 1,000 acres of tomatoes every week um, for other growers as well, and he shoots from the hip. He doesn't give you any bullshit and I asked him point blank last week, I said, I want your frank answered. did we we A, look any better than conventional tillage, B, look any worse, and C, did we hurt ourselves? The biggest thing he said he notices in our fields, and I think I mentioned it earlier, is the consistency of the tomato crop, one end of the field to the other, despite the different soil conditions and soil types from one end to the other. He doesn't know how to explain that compared to conventional tillage. He suspects it's to do with how we applied our fertility. and With the strip till unit, we're using Orthman units. With the parallel linkage, he suspects that some of the guys that see more variability over a sand mill are getting too deep with their tillage or variability in the low ground aren't as deep as they think they could be. And they don't realize it's affecting planter performance whereas we're keeping a consistent depth one end of the field to the other with the parallel linkage on the row units despite what's going on between the rows that's one thing we suspect is going to help is helping with the, the tomato stand and the other thing is the banding of the fertilizer and putting it close the other change we made in going back to that bacterial disease infection all they could tell us that year to fix a bacterial disease was put more nitrogen on and when the tomatoes are that big to put nitrogen on, they were, we had to use dissolved urea if we were going to do it, and then you had to blend it, and you could only put on like 10 pounds in an application, and it was going to be a nightmare. We didn't do any of that. <clears throat> we took a pretty big hit on yield. But the tomatoes, when they take off in uh, late June, early July, that rapid growth is when the bacterial disease, if it has it, won't let the plant grow. So. took me two or three years to figure this out we needed to change when we put our nitrogen on so I went through the research and looked at when a tomato plant uses most of its nitrogen because we were historically putting all our nitrogen on up front before we were 28 percent it was all done with the urea or ammonium nitrate blended with the and broadcast so we're using 28 percent. we took that henneker cultivator that we'd used for fall tillage and now we use a strip tiller we put new units or newer units on the back of it the Hinecker 5000 had the fertilizer tube that mounted behind the shank and went out the wings. I don't know if anybody used the Hinneker. But anyway, we got the nitrogen 28% this far from the tomato row on the inner row spacing and about double that far away from the row on the, the wide spacing. And we were able to apply that r- right before the plant took off and started to need a lot of ends. So we figured that it would help Boost the growth of the plant at the right time to help it fight disease, bacterial disease particularly. Luckily, this year there is no, there's very little to no bacterial disease in the tomato crop anywhere in Chatham Kent. So we didn't again didn't get to test that theory yet, but we're very happy with the visual results of how well the tomatoes took off after we applied that. So back to the what I would consider a bankable. uh, and it depends what you call bankable. I think somebody said the first question a lot of people ask you are, you getting the same yields as your neighbors are when you're strip-tilling?" I, I don't know. I think they're I don't I don't know my neighbors well enough for them to tell me. I know my neighbors pretty good, and I know most of them won't tell me the truth when I ask them what their yields were. <laughs> and I probably don't tell them the truth when I tell them what mine are either. So. And as I, my argument is, it's not about who has the biggest absolute yield. It's who has the fattest wallet at the end of the year, and I think my wallet's fairly well padded. Um, The difference we've seen. So we switched to strip. So the precision technology allowed us to move the strip till. Um, We've adopted it. We have a system in place now with the strip till tomatoes. We took processing peas out of our rotation because they insisted we work the ground, and they chose when to come in and harvest and. Anyway, we got rid of the peas for a number of reasons, and now if we can figure out how to get the majority of the tomatoes harvested when it's dry and don't make big tracks in the field, we're hoping not to have to do any broadacre tillage after tomatoes and go to planting a wheat crop right after tomatoes where we can to help alleviate compaction. So a strip till, we're a two pass system now. With broadacre tillage, we were a minimum three, in most cases a five pass system. Uh, Strip-till uses, by my estimation, looking at the track and fuel um, about 40% less fuel per pass than the Broadacre did. We're only working 30% of the ground. With the system we're trying to adopt, we're going to never till between the rows. Whereas in Broadacre, we were taking that soil structure back down to powder every year. So I have in here 20% less fuel per pass. We'd never drive where we're going to plant, so you can cheat a little bit and get in when it's maybe not 100% fit. And we're starting to see a multi-year benefit where we've got the rotation on the parking lot clay to the point where we're, in the, we're going to approach the third year on one of the fields with corn, and we are about 15% higher than that county's average for a production on corn. So we're thinking that maybe we're doing, and I just use the overall county averages from crop insurance to to compare mine to since I don't trust my neighbors. And it seemed like with broad acre tillage, we were starting over again every year. So where are we going to go now? We're look, Always looking for ways to leverage the investment. We have, when you figure it out, five, six, seven tractors with RTK, about 25,000 Canadian apiece. That's a fairly large investment. We want to figure out how to leverage that. and and build on our efficiencies. We'll continue to evaluate the different cultural practices, where cover crops fit, how they work. Spend more time and effort on our data evaluation. Um, I've subscribed to a couple different software packages to help with that, to make better decisions. And overall, I just hope to reduce my tuition every year and that's the tuition of the School of Hard Knocks to which I usually contribute a couple thousand dollars a year.
0: thank you, Mark, for sharing your strategic investment in precision technology within your strip-till operation. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at StripTillFARMR and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on January 19th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series and a reminder you can still register to receive our brand new strip till farmer print newsletter at striptillfarmer.com for mark richards topcon agriculture and our entire staff here at strip till farmer i'm jack semlica thanks for listening